It was at this moment that he knew. He bucked up. Welcome. You're listening to Bucked Up with Sam Buck. Jeff or Jedi, usually? Jedi. Jedi. Do you know, uh, I, I call him Irish. Do you know him as Joey or Irish? Joey. That's yeah. so, because I, whenever people call him Joey, I like, I don't put two and two together because I only know him as Irish. Uh-huh. And so I'm, I'm guessing that's probably similar to how people are with you when they call you Jeff. Well, my, uh, my original nickname was Phones. Phones or yeah. Fonz? Phones. Phones. Like headphones. Okay. I don't know if like you had two cell phones on you at all. No. Times. <laughs> no. I just, uh, you know, because I was all, I mean, they used to say, uh, you know, when, when I die, they're just going to like take my remains and stuff them between the knobs. <laughs> <laughs> On the mixing board. <laughs> That's what one person said. <laughs> is that still your goal? Is that your No, that you not at all. Out? No, no, not at all. But I mean, they just, I never left the studio. I lived in the studio, you know. When did you start doing So I wanted to prepare, you know, some stuff for you, but that you have so much about you that I wanted to kind of start from the beginning of your history, your origin. When did you start? making or working with music um well i mean uh my mom is musician what did she play she's an opera singer oh wow was i mean she's passed on but she uh she started her career when she was 40 years old and she ended up singing with the metropolitan opera and the city opera and she sang all over the world did she have passions to do it? Of course she did yeah, earlier yeah. than that. How old were you when she started? Well, um, God, I don't She was an opera singer as long as I remember. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I mean, what she had a, a uh, 3M made a um, mono reel-to-reel uh, tape recorder that went by the name of Wallensack. And I used to uh, use that to record stuff when I was a kid. And I'm, I'm talking about like starting at like 10 years old. What would you be, just different sounds or would you try singing? Well, I mean, uh, I figured out how to disconnect the capstan motor from the reel-to-reel motors so I could record with the machine in fast forward and record at the same time. And then I would, uh, you know, record my voice and then listen to the voice. And you could, like, it was it was so slow that you could hear the vocal cords going clack, 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 oh, like really? that. Yeah, it was like, sounded like dinosaurs, you know, but you could really, like, you you know, the, the vibration of your vocal cords to make the sound, you could hear clack, 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 because it would be like right, recording at ridiculous, you know, speeds. And then, uh, you know, I used to record my heart, run around the house and <laughs> record my heart and stuff like that. And uh, 
were you ever were you so you weren't trying to make music at that time you were just obsessed with like the sounds and the, the yeah kind i'm a of, sound freak a sound freak yeah total sound freak you're also a a, a computer freak or, or a computer a, freak and a musician and a uh, director and a visual artist well because he was saying that some of the thing you you're called jedi because of some of the things you're able to do or was there another origin of that name I, you know, I made that up. I, I took the Jedi Master as a moniker. Mm-hmm. Um, mo- not so much from the standpoint of, uh, like, being a Star Wars fan. Yeah. But more from the standpoint of um, a level of excellence. Because I, I looked at it, like the Jedi Council, each person had their own special powers. And they operated with integrity Mm -hmm. kind of like when neo goes into the oracles (laughs) you know you know it's like each person has a special powers exactly and so you know i um that's why i took that and it the reason i bring that up is because it seems like at an early age you did have this like like to figure that out and to just kind of take it apart and be able to figure that out just to hear the vocal cords sounds like it was a passion at a very early age. absolutely absolutely i mean um i did uh when i was 10 i don't know who in their right mind would lend a 10 year old a bolex 16 millimeter camera (laughs) but somebody did and i like made at, at the time, uh, there was a TV program. Uh, I'm mean, Ian Fleming with, you know, mm-hmm. 007. Yes. Stuff was really hot, and and there was a uh, spinoff from that called The Man from Uncle, that was, oh, mm-hmm. uh, with Robert Vaughn, and you know they made all kinds of like kids accessories, like like a briefcase that had like a little gun that yeah, would like come a, out like of it. Spy, you know what yeah. I mean? Just like all kinds of spy shit. Yeah, I used to go to the spy museum in D.C. when yeah. I would visit as a kid, and I used to love all that stuff. And I actually watched the original Man from U.N.C.L.E. Okay. when I was a, Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I'd watch the Man from U.N.C.L.E. And uh, so I made a spy thriller, <laughs> uh, you know, and got the kids from the neighborhood to come over. And it was the boys from OK, <laughs> the organization of kids against cat, clean American torturers. <laughs> And uh, it was just like, you know, it was black and white and, you know, we used ketchup for blood, <laughs> you know. And then I recorded the, uh, a portion of the Man From U.N.C.L.E. Uh, television program. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, edited out the dialogue and used that for the music track. Oh, wow. And so I, there was an after school program uh, when I was going to school and this guy, you know, he had taken supercalifragilisticexpialidocious and a spoonful of sugar and like edited it together, like, you know, just all messed up. And he said, put that back together again. And I was like, oh, that's easy. And I just like put the, you know, put the songs back together again. And that's how I learned how to edit. Were you, so you were kind like you weren't taught that you were just kind of born with this innate ability to i kind of i just understood it Mm -hmm. you know from and uh you know i remember my teachers they had me come and like give a talk about like they were like how did you know how to do that and i was like i don't know i just knew (laughs) you know was your family or you said your mom followed her passion at a later age in life were they 
willing to help you along the way with like they saw that this was your innate they talent. were supportive yeah. yeah i mean i, I you know matchbox cars i did animation with them in eight millimeter claymation stuff um, wow so you really do ha- you were at a young age very creative and just yeah. following your yeah looking back so i am 23 as i said and i feel honored it's it's a weird way to put this but feel honored for the passion that i have because i see people who don't find their passion till later in life gotta get it gotta have it, it you and you have to stick to it. you have to yeah. hold on yeah. to it like yeah, absolutely and I feel honored that I have that. And I don't know where that came from. I try to look back and be like, was I born? Like, where did that passion come from? But you're later in life. Do you ever look back and be like, where did that, where, why, why me? Like, why did I learn all this? Why did I know all this stuff at an early age? You know, with me, it's all, it's just always been there. And I've always, I mean, I remember telling my dad, uh, you know, here, look, you know, when you look at the soap operas, that's videotape. And when you look at the, you know, when you look at the movies on the movie of the week, that's, that's film. And he'd be like, how can you tell? I'm like, what do you mean? How can you tell? You can see it, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. And, and so, I mean, passion. I used to, I, I, I told, uh, Joey Irish (laughs) that, uh, um, the way I started, I started recording bands in basements using broomsticks for mic stands and like the mattresses for gobos. Just figuring it out however you can. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would, uh, I took apart, you know, I just take stuff, I would take stuff apart. My mom told me when I was a kid, she came home and the, I had taken the vacuum cleaner apart <laughs> completely wheels everything i didn't know how to put it back together again (laughs) but it was just like all in pieces in the living room and my dad used to you know he he, there when he went to the mechanic where he got his car fixed they would give me pieces of cars you know like just just so you could play so i so i could take them apart and 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 you know just levers and you know screws and (laughs) you know bellows yeah (laughs) just all that kind of stuff so i would just always take shit apart that's so fun. So they were, th- those were your toys and stuff. I think about that kind of like, the reason I have a podcast is one of my passions is talking. I love, I want to know how everyone else functions because I, I don't understand it. I don't know how I function. I don't know how anyone can be successful in whatever their field is. I, I, I want to learn that. I like talking. I like finding out about people. And when I was a kid... Looking back at it, I didn't know this at the time, but like my parents would teach me how to talk to adults and take me out to restaurants where kids weren't allowed and bring me around, like not just hmm. like kid talk. I equate it to children who only eat like kid food, like chicken fingers and french fries growing yeah. up, and then yeah, they yeah. don't get like an expanded palate. I yeah. feel like I was opened to like a variety of of viewpoints of the world because I was brought around so many different people as a kid. And that's kind of where my passion, I guess, grew from. Or I had it and that was where it, kind of like you taking apart the vacuum cleaner for no reason. I'm totally passionate about it. Um, And, you know, I love it. Uh, I like audio and visual. I was always like in the AV club. Would you record your mom? Yeah, I recorded. I recorded my mom, uh, you know, but I record. Unfortunately, I recorded her in a studio that was kind of built for disco, so it was like no acoustics, and it was like pillows on the walls, and 
and and stuff like that and and uh you know, I put her with headphones with a artificial spring Tapco reverb that was a rack mount unit made by a company called Tapco. And she was completely thrown off by that. And she, uh, you know, I didn't understand it at first, but what I understood afterward was that she uses the uh, reflections from the room to find her pitch. Oh, wow. And, you know, when she's singing with the orchestra, that the stuff that's coming back at her you know, like not isolated with the headphones on, but like right. acoustically helps her find, you know, what her pitch is and, and what her volume is and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, when you put on headphones for the first time and you put a compressor on it and everything's the same volume and you have an artificial reverb, that was like completely like an acid trip or something for her. I don't know if this is the same comparison, but I, I do stand-up comedy. That's another one of my passions. My yeah. passion is podcasting and stand-up. Those are the two things I've always wanted to do, and that's kind of my life passion. And when Corona came around, comedy went away for a little bit. Yeah. And there, there was Zoom comedy. You do it over the com- you do it over the computer. You do stand-up in front of a bunch of people who were also sitting on computers, and that was the only thing that was around while clubs were shut down. And when I do stand-up, the thing, uh, how you know how to keep going is how your jokes land on the audience and how they react. Yeah. So, like, you hear the laughter, right. and you need them to give you that, like, audible reaction back to you. And when you're through Zoom, it's that you put the headphones on, and you're like, wait, what? like, I don't know how to have this talk anymore because I'm not getting the same communication from the audience totally or from the room I guess in the way of opera totally so I'm guessing she did not like that and she no she she didn't like the way she you know performed. but she's an artist and so she never liked the way that she performed but um is opera one of those art forms that is best it is live like it's not like a recorded art form Yeah. yeah I mean uh you know I was on uh it makes me think of I was on the road uh, early with the Talking Heads, and they would go. You know, it's like the in the development of bands, the audience reaction as you're you know on the road, and, and they would play more countryish when they were down south. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It was like you know because the because they they play off the audience. Right. How did I was just um, I started and I didn't get to finish the uh, the Utopia the new live Talking Heads. Um, it's not, it's not, that's David Byrne. David, oh, I'm sorry, the David Byrne. Yeah. But, um, I was watching that and it was the, the live, the reaction. How did you get, um, I wanted to go through your history, but how did you get uh, on tour with the Talking Heads? How did that? Um, well, I was building a studio with another guy in Norwalk, Connecticut. Uh, and word came through a family friend that this band the talking heads which i thought was like a totally weird name it's like (laughs) hearing the name of the band the police you'd be like what (laughs) you know yeah and uh um that they needed a roadie and that uh they wanted somebody that had a van and i didn't have a van but the partner that i was building the studio with had a van so uh i suggested him and he started doing gigs with them and then he needed help, and he hired me. And he was working for $50 a gig, and I was working for $25 a day. Wow. And uh, he would get pissed when we, you know, like went to California in the van. 
because he didn't make any money <laughs> and I was making money just sitting in the van. Yeah. You know? And, uh, then I eventually, you know, I did some recording with them. Uh, and was I, that early in their career? This was when was they were 70, just touring. The first, the first record talking head 77. Okay. And then, um, uh, I ended up doing, I was, they, they traveled with like nine or 10 guitars cause they used different tunings. And I would, I would uh, basically be tuning guitars and guitar tech and stuff like that. And then... Well, it is David Byrne, but in the, in the Utopia, the drum set, each person has their own drum. There's not yeah. like a drum set. It's, yeah. It is that very... Yeah. This. And then, uh, you know, eventually uh, that, you know, I mean, went through a, a bunch of different incarnations in terms of tours. And uh, then they were going to... Uh, kind of like towards the end what i what i understood was that they you know they rehearsed for like a year before they even played a gig mm -hmm. and then you know at the end of when i was working with them uh they were just completely fried like david would like spit up blood uh you know at the yeah. end of the gig and tina had like a cut on her finger of like the one that she played the bass with mm -hmm. and she put new skin on it and it would bleed every night oh you know and then they went to europe and when they came back I, I was like, you know, I was young and I was like, I didn't have any money and, you know, and I was, they were going to go to, uh, uh, where'd they do Remain in Light? They were going to do, record Remain in Light. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was trying to convince my dad, can you lend me the, the money to get to the Bahamas? I was like, if I could just get there, you know what I mean? Then, you know, and he was like, why should I lend you the money to go to the Bahamas? And I was like, but dad, they're going to be working with Brian Eno. It's like, come on, dad. <laughs> you know, this is, this is like serious shit, you know? It's the same moment when you were a kid and you're like, how do you not know the difference between the yeah, videotape you know? and the... <laughs> and he was like, well, I'd like to go to the Bahamas myself. No, I'm not giving you the money to go to the Bahamas. Fast forward like, to oh, him on the no, stage with man. Talking Head. <laughs> Your dad, you know, um, oh my God. stage rocking you know, out. And then, <laughs> you know, and I'm still, I'm, I'm in uh, David, I'm in uh, uh, Chris Francis. He did a, 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 a book mm -hmm. recently. He put me in the book and, uh, you know, we've been in touch over the years. I mean, I, I, I deed with uh, Chris and Tina. This might lot. be an ignorant question, but... How does a band like that blow up w without social media? I don't know. Like that's I don't I, I I've always wondered that. It's because it's is it it is the same way, but it's not. Like how you said they were I practicing mean, for I a year. I was like I was a roadie. I didn't know that much about it except that I knew that you know they would play a gig mm -hmm. and they would get um, a tally of like how many records they sold. You know what I mean? After you know the next day or so. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, at the time, what they were doing was really new and really raw. Mm -hmm. And what my partner was into um, and what we were doing in the studio uh, was a completely different bag. It was, um, you know, more fusion-oriented kind of weather report type, yeah. type stuff. But you I must mean, have known they were something because you said you left building I, the studio to go. Well, they they were the gig that we did when we while we built the studio. Okay. In other words, we were we were in this space, and we were building the studio, and uh, we would go do gigs with them, and then come back and build the studio, and then uh, we ran the studio as a rehearsal studio for a while, and you know rehearsal and recording studio, mm -hmm. but we were you know we were into like 
Return to Forever, uh, you know, Chick Corea and, you know, yeah. Al Dimiola and mm -hmm. all, all those kind of guys, you know what I mean? And, and uh, we had, um, there was a trio rehearsing in the studio that uh, was uh, Mirslav Vitus, the bass player. Okay, yeah. And Kenny Kirkland, who's passed on keyboard player, and Don Elias, who played with uh, all, all kinds of people. He was, you know, mm -hmm. played with Joni Mitchell and all kinds of people. And they were doing this really, you know, high-level jazz stuff. And, um, you know, I know my partner was like, oh, this stuff sucks. You know what I mean? Like this punk kind of shit. You know, mm -hmm. I hate it. You know, these guys suck. The band sucks. And I was like, but it's a band. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And it's like they're, you know, they're like working together and they're great, you know? <laughs> so I was into it, you know? And, you know, they, they recognized that. And, uh, you know, I was enthusiastic about, you know, being on the road and, and everything like that. But, I mean, you know, we, we did... They flew, we drove, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And we're talking about, you know, to Los Angeles, to Dallas, to right. Niagara, to Miami, <laughs> you know. How old were you when this all happened? I can't even remember. In my 20s. But that was probably amazing learning it. Was that your first um, bout with the industry? Uh, like, the industry? You said you had your own studio, but like... Well, I was building the studio with this guy, Gary, and, and you know, he had the bread, and I had the muscle, and... Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, uh, how'd the studio come along? How'd you move on from broomsticks and, uh, and well, Gary had taken all these, uh, you know, courses. So he knew the names of all the microphones and he knew all this technical stuff that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And I just had a talent for, you know, I could take, I like took apart my dad's stereo and figured out how to use it as a recording console, you know, oh, that wow. kind of stuff. And, uh, so, you know, I wanted to learn how to be in the studio and like what to do, uh, you know, and all that stuff. And I just used to, I literally just thought, okay, I'm just going to live here, literally live here. And I didn't have an apartment. I didn't, I just like lived on this, on the couch in the studio. And I, I it was a big deal for me to go to my girlfriends on the weekends and like have a hot meal, <laughs> except there was a, you know, there was a diner next to the studio so you can have yeah. a hot meal. But I mean, you know, it's like take, you know, take a hot shower and, <laughs> You but know. of course that all, that pay, it, it might have been tough in the moment but do you look back at that and you're like oh that's probably when most of the growth happened or most of my well that, i mean that was it part of the growth was uh finding out that um the best mixes i ever made were when i had to go to the bathroom really bad <laughs> because you know there's a reason why you go in the studio and like you have to like do it all at this one time and mm -hmm. i i, I kind of thought Okay, if I live in the studio, then I'm just going to have hit records, and that'll be that, you know? Oh, because you and, get kind of used to it, yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, there's a deadline, you know what I mean, for mm -hmm. doing stuff. And so I just lived in the studio. So, that, I mean, experimentally, yes. You know? I th You ever seen the movie Eraserhead? I know about it. I, I mean, I... It's my, a weird movie. Yeah, it's a yeah. weird movie, and I'm not even the biggest fan of that style, but he lived on the set of that movie for five years mm -hmm. while filming it, and it took him five years. And movies really aren't supposed to take that long, especially yeah. a movie like that, but it's that he lived on the set, so it's when, when you say that, it brings me back to an interview I heard of... Um, what's the guy's name who did Eraserhead? Oh, I forget. What you say? David Lynch, yeah, of just like, you're right. If you if you have somewhere to go, that'll push you to do something. If you have yeah. unlimited time, then you're just going to be like trying to perfect things, but that never really yeah, comes. Yeah, but you, you also need that, that unlimited time to uh, make a higher level 
art in Sir mm-hmm. Summers. And then you also look back at it and go like, did I really need all that time? But really you do, you know what yeah. I mean? It's like if you're doing a painting and you know, you had to like get it done in a certain period of time and there's, and you know, what, what eventually I learned was that, um, you know, there was a reason to have, uh, a deadline and there was a reason that, you know, that I didn't have, let's say hit records, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just from living in the studio, it's, it's not, it's not about that, but you know, that, I just, I looked at it as like these big bands, the Rolling Stones and these different people, they had all the studio time in the world. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, if I have all the studio time in the world, then, <laughs> you know, that would be a good thing. That'd right. Be at least like one slot checked, you know? Were you, so you said that you figured a lot of this stuff out as a kid. Did you have someone who kind of mentored you and showed you the way? Like it, really, it seems like it's it's hard to learn a lot about mixing and mastering, especially you know in the what in the early seventies, late sixties. Is that when you were starting? Well, um, the studio, you know, was like studio was basically. I mean, before we had the studio, I was like in a band house, and we had like mm-hmm. cut a hole through the floor so that we could record the band downstairs, <laughs> and and stuff, and uh, you know, so I was like always like learning stuff but uh in in the end uh i don't know that i mean there's i just like experimented you Mm -hmm. know what i mean throughout through a lot of stuff and i remember when i was in the studio that i spent like a year on what is center and then a year on like what is EQ (laughs) and a year on what is compression and you know by putting other records up or you know like taking a cassette at the time you know and like taking some somebody's hit record and just like fiddling with the EQ and fiddling with the compressor and fiddling with all the different things that you could do to it that's basically how I learned and you have to have passion to do that Someone who just wants to do it but doesn't really have like a real love wouldn't spend a year studying these things or wouldn't, you know, live on the couch in the studio. I think about that is I lived on Cape Cod, um, which is like an hour and 45 minutes from Boston. And it's a pretty it's a pretty shitty drive. I'm not going to lie. But when I I was working 50 hour work week and every single day I would leave work, drive the hour, 45 minutes to go do like five minutes on stage. That's actually where I met these two mm-hmm. was at those mics that I would be driving. So I'd work all day from 10 to 8 or 10 to 7, drive two hours to do five minutes, drive back you know, sleep, do it all again the next day for five minutes every night. But that's the only way that you're able to do it. Yeah, that's the yeah. only way that you're able to learn. And it, it show it, it is that it shows with the, the passion that no matter what, yeah, but you also, I mean, the, the mentorship is it's like, I would listen to Pink Floyd mm-hmm. and go like, why does it sound like God himself reached down <laughs> and like plucked a guitar string that rang forever <laughs> you know into infinity and why does my recording sound like a mosquito farted like from a telephone pole like 3 miles away you know yeah like how is that you know what i mean how do i get that sound how do i make it like you know sound huge 
I feel that way with jokes. I'll hear yeah. a joke and I'm like, how does it seem like you just came out of that with the, off the top of your head, yeah. made me laugh and learn, and I'm saying a stupid hack joke that like makes yeah. people yeah. giggle. Yeah. You know what I It's the same it's thing. Art, and you it's just, art in motion. And you, fo- you focus on it. But I... I don't know how it's a, it's a stupid term, but spiritual you are. But there's this book, The Alchemist, that talks about omens that shows that, like, when you do follow your passion, life gives you these, like, little gifts that you have to be on the lookout for, but it shows you that you're on the right path because it gives you these little, like, omens, these little gifts. And when I look back on my life being like, oh, I am following my path because I can see these clear steps that were given to me because of the work I put in that I am following my passion. Do you, are you any, I he was telling a little bit about the money, the money thing, but are you spiritual? Do you see those at all in your life? Like every, do you, every day. Yeah. Absolutely. Every day. The omen, I, the omen, the omen. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think I told, Joey about, you know, I got a call from Hugh McCracken who has passed on and Hugh McCracken was like one of the most famous guitar players that you've never heard of, but he's played on everybody's record. I mean, every everybody from Steely Dan to Aretha Franklin to John Lennon to, I mean, just everybody. And he said that Dr. John wanted some help, you know, needed some help in his studio in, mm-hmm. in, uh, in the Hamptons. And, um, so he said, you know, remember, you know, he's Dr. John, so charge him. And I was like, good, <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I went out to visit him. And on, you know, I, I thought, okay, he's got to have like a big studio. He's got a big house. He's like rich, you know, mm-hmm. and everything. And, I, and his studio was in his bedroom. <laughs> And it was like a keyboard with a Shure mic, you know, and like an ADAT machine, you know, mm-hmm. and none of the stuff was hooked up. And, and you know, that's where he created music, was like a little sequencer, and he's like totally, totally famous. I mean, number yeah. one hits and all kinds of stuff. And I turned around and I saw a picture on his wall that was a picture that I had downloaded a couple of months before. Really? What was it of? It was a picture of a, it was a 1948 Christmas calendar of a woman that looked kind of like Doris Day, and she had a uh, white German shepherd, which we had just gotten a white German shepherd, and I was looking at different websites, and, you know, we came across, like, all this Americana stuff. Jack LaLanne, the exercise mm-hmm. guy, had white German shepherds, or Disney did a movie called White Fang that had white German shepherds in it. Um, there was all this stuff and I found this one picture on the internet and this is early in the internet and I said to my wife can you download that like that was like a big deal (laughs) downloading it you know what I mean the one picture (laughs) and she said why and I said I don't know I just like it and And it's hanging up in his wall and and, you know so there's this picture that I like liked and you know was on the computer for a couple of months before I got asked (laughs) to, you know, to like go and see this guy's studio. Yeah. And I turn around and that picture's on his wall. And I'm like, okay, why is that picture on your wall? And he said, that's my mother. And I went, oh my fucking God. Holy shit. And of course I called my wife and I said, you know that picture that we downloaded? And she mm-hmm. said, yeah. And I said, he has it on his wall. And she, she said, that's his mother, right? And I was like, 
Oh no. You know. <laughs> yeah. It's so just... I mean that happens to me every day. Every day. And that shows that you're on the right path. Exactly. I mean, I worry at the end of a project where I'm like, you know, where I've invested my heart, my money, everything I've got into mm -hmm. it, and there's nothing coming in at all. And mm -hmm. I'm like going, now when I get done with this, I'm going to be fucking broke. I'll be fucked up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's when I started saying money comes to me easily and damned if it doesn't. I mean, and so, you know... It's it's really that that's kind of like the Star Wars thing, like pay no attention to that drone. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's a, but it works. It does. Yeah. It really does work. And so, you know, I mean, my prosperity sayings and things, you know, expanding on them. And I've like I was once pining about a particular piece of equipment and it happened to be like a 1960s style or from the, a piece, it was a two-inch, 16-track uh, tape machine, specific model, Ampex MM1000. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted it so bad. And I was just like, my whole heart was like, I want this freaking thing. It's like, this thing is so cool. It's so badass. I could make records with it and all mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. And literally like a year later, somebody that I had known for a couple of years turned to me and says, you know, I have something for you. <laughs> And I was like, what? And he says, it's in storage. I'm clearing out my storage space and, you know, why don't you come and see it? And I went and looked at it. And the thing was like huge, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? It was like, you know, and I was like, oh my God, that thing's as big as a refrigerator. I can't take that. It's not even going to fit in the house. And I like walked out of the storage space and went, boom. That's exactly what I wanted. Yeah, that's the exact That's exactly, it's not, I mean, the model, the year, the whole nine. Wow. And How'd you get it into your house? I, I hired a truck and got it. I mean, it was, the thing was big. Yeah. You know, and uh, I never made any real records on it, but I tinkered with it. And then I eventually gave it to somebody else who really, really wanted it. <laughs> that thing probably has a spirit and it was supposed to be yeah, given so, to I mean, you just, to work on to yeah, then be given to the next person. Stuff. I yeah. believe in that stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, it's come from, you know, real life experience stuff. I mean, Joey, you know, I'm a cancer survivor. Okay. Okay. And uh, I was saying my prosperity prayers, and I got cancer. So it occurred to me that maybe the cancer was a good thing. And this kind of came after a dream that I had where I was kind of told in symbols that I wasn't going to die from it. So that probably had something to do with it. But, mm -hmm. you know, when they when they take your arm and they, like, put a needle in, it hurts. And then when they, like, put chemotherapy into your arm, it actually hurts going in. It's painful. And so I made the decision to um, welcome the chemotherapy. So it's kind of like, you know, you take a bitter pill or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we used to play this. I mean, I remember playing a game. I don't remember when I did it, but you, like, put the, hot, put the water on and, and put it on hot and then see how long you can hold your hand <laughs> under the water. Yeah, it's like hot potatoes. Yeah. So. yeah. yeah. And I, I would counteract that by saying, okay, that's an extreme hot. So let me in my mind say that it's the extreme in the other direction, cold. And how long can I hold my hand under a cold, you know, thing and just mm -hmm. like make believe it's the cold side, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, the, the idea of, you know, of me saying 
no, <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, to, okay, it's your turn, Mr. Jones. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like now we're going to put this stuff in you, which actually does kill you. It will kill you. Yeah. And it is poison to your body. Mm -hmm. And your body knows it. And you know it. And I know it. You're intellectually. Yeah. You Which know? is the worst part. Right. That's you all that I mean? your brain's right. telling the you. Idea, yeah. The idea is that it, that 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 will kill the cancer before it kills you. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so, you know, to say, you know, okay, let me suck this stuff in because it's healing me mm -hmm. is like a complete opposite from like... No, 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 right. no, no. That's know. the cold. That's yeah, the extreme cold. Yeah, that's cold. the cold, the extreme cold. So, you know, that that was, you know, and I, it's, it wasn't easy. Mm -hmm. And I didn't do it all the time because <laughs> I couldn't mentally, you know, it's like, I, it takes you know, because I, I run away in fear a lot, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. But um, I did have the experience of doing that yeah. and, and saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, you know, like psych myself into this. And, um, you know, like any of the productions that I do, um, you know, for like heavy, heavy people, Wynton Marsalis and stuff like that, I have a mantra. This one thing that, uh, you know, was nominated for a Grammy, I just said, I want the listener when they're hearing this to say to themselves, I've heard stuff like this before, but I've never heard it like this. And then damned if... You know, somebody I, like, here, listen to this. You know what I mean? This is some bad shit. Put headphones on them and they go like, wow, I've heard shit like this before and I've never heard it like this. And I go like, yes, mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> so that intention, that kernel of, you know, of goodness or that, that positive, you know, the, the mantra that, you know, through yeah. which you live and the integrity of that mantra, the prayer, mm -hmm. the positive reinforcement, the positive, uh, affirmations mm -hmm. and all that stuff makes a huge difference in how, you know, day-to-day -day life goes. So it's the idea of you can be living in hell or you can be living in heaven. And it's all about your mindset. Not that I follow, you know, those Christian yeah. ideologies, but it is the mindset that you take or the, the intent you give to something that is important like that's i kind of think about that i don't mean to keep going back to stand up and stuff but with joe with jokes it's like maybe this joke is about this one thing but if i know and i spent my time and i put my intent and this is what i actually want you to learn from it i feel like that can be like, I can feel the audience getting that. Like, I could be telling a silly joke that might be about a deeper subject. Mm -hmm. But because I'm giving it the, no, this is really something deeper, understand this, they do understand that, even though it's not with words. We think words is the only way we communicate, but it's not. It's really not. No, it's not. I could tell that through you and I having a real conversation now, or when I talk to someone through Zoom on an interview, it's a great talk, but there's not, like, the same connection. Mm -hmm. Like, there's... Other than the words that we're passing off to each other, there's, like, an energy that we're giving off to each other that then feeds into the conversation. Mm -hmm. And um, there's, like, there's that with everything. And it's great. Did you have that... 
when you were going through chemotherapy, did you have that mindset beforehand or was that something that you had learned, you had to teach yourself because you were going through such a, such a situation? Well, it's like the omens that you're shown, um, you know, the stuff continues to be proven to you. And, you know, I mean, I, what I tell people now is I, it's like, I follow directions, you know, I, I ask for, uh, you know, there, there's like an underlying intelligence and knowledge, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, that we're all in touch with. And, um, you know, that's available all the time. But it comes out, you know, at peaceful times or in a quiet voice or, a, you know, it's like, or a kind of summation of, you know, of all the different stuff that we're thinking about. And we go like, oh, wait a minute. I could do this, which solves all of those various different issues. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, you know, I'm just looking to expand on that. It's like, I have a certain amount of time left here, you know, like hopefully, you know, as much time as you, but probably less, you know? Yeah. And, uh, there's something that (laughs) since I was a kid and like mowing my dad's grass, I wanted to like make hit records and have a Grammy and, you know, and, and all that stuff, you know, and so I achieved that and it was like not in the form that I expected it to be, but I knew it was coming. I could tell from the omens, (laughs) you know, I could tell what was, you know, what was happening. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, the, the way that we think of it is like, you know, you get called, you run up on stage, you say, thank you very much and stuff like that. The, the reality for me was, uh, you know, I was offered tickets from Dr. John and I had to go buy a tux because I couldn't rent one cause I'm like six foot eight and it cost $700. I, I, I'm six I mean? four, so yeah. when I rented a tux for prom in high school, it was like three hundred dollars. I yeah. couldn't believe it. Yeah. yeah. So you know, and I went there, and they said, you know, they said you can't get up on the stage. I said, yeah, but I'm, you know, I produced the record. You know, mm-hmm. it's like I was a co-producer on the record. And they said you can't get up on stage. Sorry, you know. And so you know, when they called it, his manager was waiting down on the side of the stage, and he ran up there, and I was like, he's not going up there without me. Fuck that. And so I went to go up and my wife was pulling me back saying, you can't go on stage. And I was like, that's my whole life. My entire life right now, right this moment is walking up there. I don't care if you fucking pull the tux off of me and I go up naked, I'm going up there. And I ran up there. And, you know, so, you know, that having been through that experience and having it not having it be like, you know, it wasn't what I expected it to be, Mm -hmm. but then having the post of that, having achieved something, which I had like spent my entire life wanting to achieve, I had to look at like, okay, now what? Now what am I doing? You know, and now where am I going and what, and all that kind of stuff. What was your next step after that? What did, what did you find when you asked that? I want more Grammys. (laughs) Well, that's one. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, but it, you know, it's, it's like there's there's a post thing to that. It's like you know, if whatever it is, you know, each person's different. Whatever it is that you truly want, you know what I mean? Yeah. That that 
you know, I mean, we're afraid to get what we really want. We stand in our own way more 100%. than hundred percent more than like anybody stands in our way. Yeah, you know? it's resistance. Yeah, it's resistance. It's like you know, what if I get what? If, what if I go for it and I'm like this far away from it and I don't get it? Then I'll be crushed. So maybe I shouldn't try. What if I get something not the way that I expected it? Like right. you, it's, and that's such a, that's such a shitty thing about human beings, is we are scared to get what we want, but then when we finally get it. We're like, okay, what's the next thing? Well, I mean, I, I look at, at 65, I look at everything. It's like, okay, so I've survived drugs and alcohol. I've been sober for like 35 years. Uh, you know, it's like I went through cancer. Uh, my wife said, you know, like what was harder, uh, you know, going through a year and a half worth of chemo or getting sober. I was like, getting sober was fucking harder than this shit, you know? And, mm. you know, so I've been through all this different shit and, and, and and really now it's gravy it's always been gravy but now it's it's like this is gravy okay so i should be dead by now all right so i'm not dead so this is more to offer to the world you know this is this is great okay each day is great each moment is great whether i feel good about it or not the shittiest most fucked up shit that happens where I am the most angry, where it vexes me the most, is actually the stuff that I, in, historically I've survived through and I learn shit from. So I look, I, you know, what I try to do is look at it as every single moment, every single thing, every relationship, Joey wiring the patch bay, you know what I mean? Fucking cleaning the corner in the fucking bathroom of my studio, you know what I mean? Um, you know, all of those different things, me getting really fucking pissed off that, uh, you know, that, that the work that I did was like totally not respected. You know what I mean? Where I spent, where I went beyond where I spent like, you know, five months of every last moment, you know what I mean? Trying to make something of true worth Mm -hmm. and having it be completely not respected. All of those moments are a catalyst for growth. Why are we here? What is life? You know what I mean? It's about growth. And so if every single thing that happens in every relationship and every situation and everything that I love and everything that I freaking hate is part of growth, then can't, why can't I embrace everything? And I used to like, it used to, I used to really be, confused with people that were very successful and they'd say it's all good man and i'd be like how can you say that you know what i mean because it's not all good but it actually is Mm -hmm. well that's what you were talking about how you always knew you even going back to mowing your dad's lawn like you wanted that hit totally you knew but you knew it's i describe i didn't know it i i mean i wanted it you know i knew i wanted it Mm -hmm. did you because i when you, I'm on the other end of that, and I don't want to speak because I feel like when I speak from before it happens, then it gets ruined. You know, you like you blow, you blow the load. Like you can't. But I feel like I feel like I'm standing on a train track, and I feel the train coming, even though I can't see it. And I know that if I just keep pushing, it'll work. 
even though I don't see it, you know? And it is all good. It really is all good. And I don't know where I learned that mentality from because not a lot of people have that. But it is. And it's scary. It's scary to... You said that, like, we're so scared of our success. It's scary to believe that it's all good. That's a, that's a terrifying thought to be like, it's all, it's, everything is going to work out the way it's supposed to is a really weird thought because it's not going to work out exactly how you planned. And those like little diverges in the path, you can either stop or you can just keep pushing forward. And a lot of people do stop, I feel like. Well, people give up the dream. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, do you feel lucky I mean, that your mom followed her dream at an early, uh, at a later age? Cause then that show, like my dad's a musician mm-hmm. and he had a, a job and he did music on the side, but he, he traveled, he did, he did all of that. He's a drummer. He still does it all of that. And it showed me that you can, it's good to have someone that you can see follow your passion, their passion. Yeah, well, if you don't get it from family, then you'll get it from, you know, somebody else. And, and it's important to love what you do. And it was important for me, you know, when I was, you know, on my deathbed sick uh, in the hospital for like three months and stuff like that. Um, you know, I, I would ask like the person that was taking the CAT scan or something like that, do you love what you do? Not that I could do anything about it. Not that I could say I'm not working with you because you don't love what you do. But, you know, mm-hmm. you'd have a nurse that that looked at it as like, oh my God, these fucking people, you know what I mean? It's the same and then, thing. And then you have people that are healers, you know what I mean? That, yeah. that, that, that love what they do and that, you know, that that's a part of their life and their being. Yeah. And you definitely see the difference. So, you know, and I would ask people like, do you love what you do? It's you, you know? putting a mantra into your music while you're making it, while you're master, while you're engineering yeah. it. And they can tell it's the same thing that those nerds, if they really, if they're putting their mantra into that, you can yeah. tell. In your work, whatever it is. Yeah. What was your first... What was your first break? When were you like, oh, I actually am... A ghost is attacking me. I am successful. Like, when was your first break? Well, I don't know if that would be the first job. (laughs) You know what I mean? Or, Mm -hmm. I mean... My first job when was, you were first recognized by your peers. Um, well, I mean, I'd just say my first job was doing editing for like talking books, uh, taking out ums and errs and <laughs> stuff like that. And uh, the first real break that I considered to be a break, which was you know, there was a lot going on before that. Um, but, you know, the, the thing where I felt like I started to work, I worked with somebody that was real world class was when um, this guy, Dan Hartman, heard uh, some of my mixes and asked me to work on his album. And Dan Hartman was, um, he was a bass player and guitar player. He's passed on, but he was, you know, someone that lived in the next town that uh, used to, he played with Edgar Winter. And uh, he wrote a song, wrote and yeah, he wrote a song called "Free Ride" that Edgar Winter did. That was a number one hit, and he also uh, 
Um, remember, uh, there was a song called "If I Could Dream," "If I Can Dream About You." Uh, he played all the instruments on that, and you know, uh, um, and so he heard, you know, some of the work that I was doing at this little studio in Norwalk, and he asked me to come to his place, and it was like he was somebody that uh, it's like, you know, when I walked into his garage, there was SVT amplifiers and stuff like that along with his you know porsche yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. and then i you know went in his, in his house and he had like a studio in his house and uh you know he was hooked up mm-hmm. and um you know for me that was a that was a big deal and how I, old were you at that time oh i mean this was uh um let's see i was probably about 25 Okay. How old were you when you won your Grammy? Uh, that was like uh, over 10 years ago. So, but the, um, he was on a, a subsidiary of CBS Records called Blue Sky Records. Mm-hmm. And they had uh, a couple of different artists. But I, I went and bought the record and left the price tag on it and like gave it to my dad and said, dad, this is what I want to do. I'm going to the Bahamas, you know, <laughs> like, you know, cause he was like, always, you know, he was like, why don't you get a job at one of these corporations that, you know, mm-hmm. you know, are in this area or whatever. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. And then, uh, you know, for me, he would, he would always say, but where's the monetary value? And to me, it was important to show him this is something that was sold, you know, that I got paid to work on. Mm-hmm. And that was that was kind of like a, that was proof of my, uh, of, you know, the, the industry. Yeah. <laughs> and, and my dad was coming from a place of like, he was always supporting my mom. Like he'd buy out... Alice Tully Hall, you know what I mean? And then act as a promoter to like, you know, he was supportive of her. He was supportive of her. And he, you know, so he was like subsidizing her and like doing business arrangements for her and stuff like that, you know, and she didn't necessarily make money, but you know, she got paid large sums, but you know, you don't, you don't necessarily make, you know, a profit necessarily. It's more investments. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, that was kind of like, that was a big deal for me when you were 20 is that crazy so you said you were uh, 10 years ago was when you won your grammy and that's your you were 25 when that happened you were 55 that's 30 years in the business of you kind of starting getting your first job and then the thing you wanted the thing you wished for happened 30 years after that was there well, for, for, for records, yeah, but I mean, while I was still in Norwalk, Connecticut, I mean, I recorded all the music for a documentary film that was nominated for an Academy Award. What documentary? It was called Against the Wind and Tide. It was about um, the uh, uh, Cuban refugees that came into uh, Mariel Harbor during the Carter administration. The Scarface stuff. Yeah. Yeah. In that, yeah. And... Uh, you know, so, I mean, I I was, like, making music and doing a bunch of stuff. Right. Um, I'm not but, saying you know, that, the, yeah. You know, the, 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 this thing of, like, winning a Grammy, you know what mm-hmm. I mean, was, like, that was a, uh, 
you know, I mean, my love for listening to AM radio and uh, at the time ABC, you know, AM, which was Cousin Brucie or, or WNEW FM with uh, Allison Steele and, uh, you know, the, the other guy's name was Munoz. I can't remember. Uh, Brian Muni. Uh, you know, listening to Pink Floyd and listening to, you know, listening to just these different records and, and wanting to be a part of that somehow, you know, mm-hmm. that, that was, that was a real dream. And, you know, the, the, um, wanting to be a part of, you know, popular music and respecting popular music as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, jazz musicians don't really respect popular music. Yeah, I, I, I would do classical musicians, but that's kind of normal. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a jazz like, and rap guy. Those are my yeah. a little bit of indie rock, but mostly jazz and rap. Okay. But the reason I uh, bring that up is you stuck with it. Like it, I guess this is more for people listening. But it was 30 years before. It wasn't like you can't just make things. Ha- you have to put your work in, and you have to show your time, and you have to respect the craft and the art, and you have to really immerse yourself in it. Something about my karma is that I'm like around at the very beginning of stuff, and it's happened like time after time after time that I'm around at the very beginning. It's usually like the record before somebody breaks, or, or, you know, or. I don't have, it's like I've never, it, it's something that's eluded me, you know, as, I mean, coming up as an engineer, um, you know, I, I've, I haven't really been able to like uh, rest on, you know, now it's not really possible, you know, rest on like, you know, making royalties off of, you know, mm-hmm. some hit record or whatever. And that was always part of my dream. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I want to take those royalties and then like do other shit with it, you know? But, um, Uh, I can't remember where I was going, but... Uh... No, it's no problem. You started out, uh, Joey was telling me, that you started out, you did, you did do so, uh, a rap, right? You did Public Enemy? Yeah. That was early in rap. Totally. Like... It wasn't even respected as music. It, they didn't exa- even consider it to be music. Exactly. Who were the, the dead poets were probably the first. Um, but that was, that was really early. What... Why did you get? Why did you choose? Like, how did you feel about it when that was first coming out? I I love music, so mm-hmm. I, I'm like, you know, with the Talking Heads, I was like, but they're a band, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And with with the rappers, I mean, the, the, see, I grew up in not, I mean, we were the only kids of color, not in the school, but in the entire school system. So I'm I'm a truly suburban Negro. Yeah, where'd you grow up? You know, in Wilton, Connecticut. Okay. And uh, so culturally, I was never tied into black culture, and I was always scared with my cousins, like from Westchester or whatever, that we're all, you know, culturally, you know, tied in with black culture. Mm-hmm. I felt like I wasn't fitting in because I was like from this completely lily white town where there wasn't like any other black people at all. Mm-hmm. And um, how was your town? Was it welcoming or was it a did you feel like an outcast in your town, too? Well, I mean, I was very popular. I was the only person of color. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my dad put up with, 
you know, a lot of, uh, he, you know, my mom's basically said in the South, they'll call you a nigger to your face in the, in the North. They won't say anything until you try and go out with their daughter. And that I found that to be true. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, you know, me entering into the rap thing was, you know, they'd say like, you know, you know, why don't you go with Mickey D's? And, and I'd be like, what's Mickey D's? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, McDonald's, what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, it was like a, a learning experience in that respect. And, you know, coming up, uh, you know, the, I mean, there was a famous rap studio called Chun King. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, John King, uh, I mean, that, that was like named because they had like a... They were in Chinatown, basically, mm -hmm. and they would order from this place called Chun King. But John King, who was, you know, the owner of that studio, he, he started the studio in his apartment on Broom Street. And I used to do mixes for him, like, on Broom Street. And then, you know, we had, you know, a very light relationship uh, through uh, for a number of years. And I would, like, call him up, and I'd be working in the film business, um doing production work and stuff and uh you know i'd ask him for like you know you got any work for me and so on and so forth and he he was you know up there in the music business and he'd throw me in with like jam master jay or oh wow you know or <laughs> different people and so you know it's like the you know one of those sessions was you know like another another night at the factory you know making whatever 15 dollars or 11 dollars an hour or mm -hmm. whatever and, uh, you know, I tracked uh, Bring On The Noise or Bring The Noise for Public Enemy and then, you know, then did mixes for this. Uh, they, it came out as a, they had a, an EP that came out uh, that was coordinated with the release of a movie called Less Than Zero and uh, did that. And that was, that like hit big time, just hit. Mm -hmm. And I was so out of it in terms of not being in the rap culture, not being in the, you know, in the club culture, not, you know, and all right, that kind of yeah. stuff. I was like working in the film business. I didn't even know that it was a hit yeah. until like some guy said, you mix that? Oh my God, that's like, you know, huge. And I was like, it is, you know? Wow. So yeah, it wasn't even in the, the culture, was it? It wasn't, I yeah. mean, it, for, it wasn't in my, you know, in mm -hmm. my realm of, of things, you know? <laughs> that's so funny. And, you know, so... You know, I, I mean, at one point, like, uh, you know, Russell Simmons, I was in a session one time with Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin <laughs> together. <laughs> That's insane. And they're, they were like arguing over like the drum beat, you know what I mean? <laughs> On a DMX drum machine, you know, like, oh, that beat sucks. You know what I mean? No, here, try this beat. No, that sucks. You know what I mean? And, you know, I just, if you're in New York and you're doing stuff in studios in those days, mm -hmm. you run into people. Of course. You know, you yeah. run into like different different situations and stuff like that. And, and you know, unfortunately, you know, when I came to New York, um, I was working in this small studio in Connecticut and I like literally couldn't get arrested here in New York because you had to have like New York experience in order to like get in. Mm. And I went to Electric Lady, I went to, you know, Hit Factory, I went to all these different studios. And, you know, they, like, initially said, okay, it sounds like you know what you're doing. And then they're like, nah, we got these other people that, and I'd be like, they don't know what they're talking about. You know right, what I mean? It's yeah. like, I know the equipment. I know how to hook it up. I know how to, you know, I know how to operate it. You, you have know? to, like, prove yourself. You know, you have to really, you have to prove yourself, but you have to be in the scene, per se. And, you know, for them to trust you, 
And so, you know, that that's part, you know, so I got involved with these guys uh, from Intergalactic Music who were these wacky art student guys. I got one of them now, uh, uh, he has a thing called, if you look up on uh, Instagram, The Invisible House, he, uh, in um, Joshua Tree, California, he, he's, he's produced a number of uh, um, feature films and mm -hmm. stuff like that, and, and he, he's a real entrepreneur. And they had George Martin's Old Neve, and they had the first Fairlight in New York. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, they were real uh, wacky, you know, you know, forward-thinking guys, but they, they also didn't, you know, make their leasing payments. <laughs> and, you know, they were artists, you know, and all mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. And, the, and you know, so I got involved with, with them, and, uh, you know, I used to commute backwards, you know, uh, to Connecticut to do some sessions, and then I would do se started doing sessions in New York, and, you know, there's a... Let's see, Planet Rock, you know that, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. You know, uh, play at, play at, play mm -hmm. at your own risk. I recorded the vocals on that. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> wow. You know, Arthur Baker. And, wow. Uh, um, you know, those guys came in from, like, Boston, um, and, uh, you know, they got paid, like, $100 or something to, like, do <laughs> to do, to do the vocals on that thing, you know? And it was like, yeah. Arthur was, a, you know, an early ripoff artist, you know? Um, in the business, but um, I mean, if you're around, you know what I mean. Yeah. In, in those days, you just you know meet up with people and and you know eventually you know you you know there's a bunch of different bunch of different things that I worked on that were you know that were promoted you know that became hits you mm -hmm. know and and stuff that that did I did those even... always feel right or did you feel like a like like a, a surprise when those songs blew up or when you, or were you like, no, that, that makes sense. Like it's, this is, I'm on the, the uh. at a certain point in the business, if you had anything together, mm -hmm. you made, you know, records that got promoted because they were like, you know, it's like the people that, do you think there's too much now? Is it tougher now with the amount? I think it's, of... Yeah, it's way tougher because everybody's got a home studio and, mm -hmm. You know, and that, that, that's great, and it's not great, you know. I mean, the, the great thing is that composers can, like, actually get the stuff that they always heard in their head because they can make it at home now. Yeah, but you it know. floods the market. It floods the market as well, right, exactly. Is that tough with you? Like, you, you said you were an early adopter to all these things. Is it hard to then adapt to what music is now? Because I feel like it did change over the past, like, what, five years, five, ten years? With streaming and everything, just the whole amount of music that can be put out, is it? You know, the thing that I fight for is quality. Mm -hmm. And there's a, the stuff that's lost from when I was growing up is you had album art. And uh, you were able to look at, you know, who made the stuff and where they made it. And, you know, who was involved with making it. And that stuff is lost now. Because you don't get that unless you like buy the whole album and you get like the extra package in you know, iTunes yeah. and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But that that was a big part of the experience was kind of like running your fingers over this this thing that you would like be listening to and you'd go like, okay, these people made this thing and it was yeah. like a, it was a collaborative effort. Or you could hold it and be like, I yeah. was a part of this. Yeah, exactly. This is part of me. And so yeah. you know, as a producer, um, 
you know, where do you get the producer credit now? Where is that listed? I mean, you could go to all music. Yeah, well, they fuck stuff up too. So there's like a bunch of stuff that I've done that they don't have me listed on. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I think that's honestly probably a good thing about rap music and about. Um, there's a, a rap collective out of Buffalo, New York called Griselda. And they're very big about like the artwork and creating, like knowing who mixed and mastered it and who produced it. And rap in general is very uh, big on like production being part of it now. But this, this collective, this group out of Buffalo, they show that it's a whole team that puts together the song. And that kind it's the, it's the equivalent of a feature film. Yeah, and you respect it, I think, more instead of being like, oh, that guy did that song, great See, job. In, in feature films, the unions dictate that they have to show the credits. Mm -hmm. And now if you watch it on TV, they shrink it down, they play a commercial at the same time, and it goes so fast that you can't read it. Yeah. But they're, you know, they are obligated legally to put the credits in. And that's not necessarily so in music. I mean, we're in like the wild west. Would you say of music? Because with stream, like, there's no like, there's no formula really yet. We haven't figured it out. Yeah, I mean, um, it's the, it's the wild west everywhere, all the time for everything. Really. That is true. You know what I mean? That is true. I mean, Trump has proven that. <laughs> I yeah. Mean, anything, yeah. You know, anything goes. Uh, you know, you don't have to play by the rules to be successful. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, for me, I've always had the, you know, going to like the kind of universal knowledge concept of, you know, of uh, the universe. Um, I've always felt that if you create art which is of high enough quality that it's recognized by everyone, or, you know, people that do recognize art, and even people that don't know art yeah, still react to it or still appreciate it or go, like, that's, you know, there's something about that, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that I think is, is, like, better. Yeah. And so that's, that's where I put my, my time and energy. Is, make, is making that. I mean, I. It's not uncommon for me to listen to the same song and work on the arrangement for this for a specific song, for multiple days. I mean, I mixed a record for a a singer in Copenhagen. I played a bunch of stuff, played percussion, played keyboards, and um, took a month. But when I was growing up, it would take a year for an out for a, a band to make a record. Yeah, easily. And those records are the ones that still are groundbreaking in their own in their own right. Timeless. Mean, you can tell when music's timeless. There's you can a tell lot when music's timeless. There's not a lot of timeless music coming out nowadays, and there is some, but you can tell with the quantity. It's very lo low numbers of David Bowie. Timeless. Mm-hmm. Okay, heroes. I saw a live performance on you know uh, Sterling Campbell, uh, his drummer, had a thing in Rolling Stone, and they had you know it's online. You they had a live performance of Heroes, off the fucking hook. It could have come out yesterday, and it would have been amazing. Still, totally, yeah. totally. And if you look back and you see, uh, there's an early video on YouTube of him performing at a songwriting contest. 
uh, the uh, Space Oddity. Mm -hmm. And he's playing it with the equivalent of like the Doc Severinsen Tonight Show band. You know okay. what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're like going like, what the hell is this asshole, you know, doing? What, is, what are these arrangements? The fucking song is intact. And he's like a hippie. Yeah. You know what I mean? But the song is intact. Aretha Franklin respect. Timeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Steely Dan Asia. Timeless. Okay. Well, you know who I've been listening to a lot to recently who in his timeless and it's very different from that list. I don't know if you but a lot of Fila Cootie. I love it like expensive shit, the old I don't know if you do you know Fila Cootie at totally all? Totally not. Never okay. heard the name before. <laughs> he's an old he's an old African jazz composer and musician. Mm -hmm. He puts together these pieces, each song's like fifteen minutes. Mm -hmm. And they're amazing from the 70s mm -hmm. 60s 70s amazing and i'll just i can just listen to the same like 15 minute song over and over again it's so timeless and it's mm -hmm. it really shows you know things that are supposed to stick out will well, stick what, out what you know how do you how do you base that timelessness how do you base like the timelessness and the feeling the air the hair going back on the back of your neck when you listen to like an aaron copeland piece mm -hmm. you know i mean those things uh, as I've explained to Joey, um, you know, I see it as, as I'm comes coming from engineering. Mm -hmm. We exist within a certain frequency range. That's our existence. You know, yeah. if you want to say lower is when we're asleep and higher is when we're like, you know, had a couple of coffees or something mm -hmm. like that, you know, um, and within that frequency range, uh, that's as far as we can see, let's say, with our five senses, okay? Yeah. Um, but the universe and, you know, the laws of the universe and, and all this stuff go, are so much, there's so much more mm -hmm. there. But um, everything is frequency, everything has a frequency, and all frequencies have resonance in the universe. And so, you know, I look at it as like, okay, if I'm in meditation and I've dropped my, my conscious frequency to be lower, mm -hmm. I'm then in sympathetic resonance with higher <laughs> yes. frequencies and I can see or receive information or, you know, or whatever from those, from, you know, the alternate uh, parallel uh, coexisting in the same space universe. I, I 100% agree. Meditation, I've And so, done. Yeah. you know, when you look at music and, you know, when you have tempered tuning, mm -hmm. which is tuning on a curve, um, before tempered tuning, the musicians that were commissioned by rich people would tune their instrument to the key that the piece of music was composed in. Yeah. They would choose the key based on its relationship to color because they had like a spiritual, mm -hmm. you know, connection yeah. with, you know, the frequency of color, which is a frequency. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when, when Bruce uh, Swinenan, however you say his last name, the guy that, you know, that engineered all of Michael Jackson's records, he saw color when he mixed. And so those things that are in tune, mm -hmm. quote unquote, you know, resonate with all of our hearts or beings. 
And that's beautiful, and that's why things become popular and timeless and help us. That's why certain songs connect to certain people and help them or push them to become better or do better or... And you're a big part of that. You're a, you're a big part of that to a lot of people. Music that you've made has helped a lot of people. And that isn't something that can be looked upon lightly. You've, you've made a big impact. That's the ultimate goal, in my opinion. I mean, uh, there, when you asked if there was a mentor that I had, there was a guy that lent me a Nagra uh, reel-to-reel tape machine. That's like something that cost maybe about four or $5,000 at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was like in high school. So this is a guy that like lent me a $5,000 professional piece of equipment. You know what I mean? And I was like, you know, 15 years old. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, my wife suggested that, you know, we let my my daughter play my trombone from when I was in high school band. And she wrapped it around a tree. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you know. So this guy had the, had the, uh, the courage and the the uh, the ability to see enough you know mm-hmm. uh what what i was or what i was trying to do or whatever to like lend me this piece of equipment he felt your frequencies he felt my frequency and yeah. you know when he was on his deathbed i wrote him a letter and thanked him and said you know i want you to know that that changed my life and i've now like i'm you know worked with Wynton marsalis i've done this i've done that won grammy blah 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 and his his daughter and his wife wrote me back after he passed away and said that that was the most important you know so what that is our legacy you know what i mean that's my legacy that's the most important thing is is that i want to change people's lives with music Mm -hmm. i look at it in in this day (laughs) with Trumpism and, <laughs> you know, and yeah. anti-maskers and, and all, all mm-hmm. these different people that it's artists, it's the artist's job to lead. And that, you know, that, you know, we're, there, that there's no going back, that we're like losing time as far as I'm concerned. Every, everything that he did uh, environmentally, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Rollbacks and all this stuff. I mean, the, the business people love it and the guys that are like builders love it. As far as I'm concerned, if we don't all act together, act as one as the human race then we're fucked. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that that kind of um, outlook is really important and, and pointing in that direction, that's what artist's job is, is to have that kind of vision. That's what Dr. John did. I mean, I, I was mixing uh, Dr. John's... I did this thing and... Uh, he had a song called uh, Time for a Change, okay, mm-hmm. that he wrote, like, long before Obama, like, came out with that as his slogan. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he put me in the studio with, with, with Eric Clapton, and we did guitar solo on it, and I, like, made a mix of it, and a friend of mine did a video to it, and the video's killing, and I told his management, I said get that on YouTube now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because it was right on the crest of when Obama, and the thing, as far as I'm concerned, would have, you know, blown up or, you know, would have made a, a big difference. And the video was about, um, you know, listening to your heart and, you know, mm-hmm. not, you know, just falling for money and <laughs> yeah. and all that stuff. And, and uh, you know, they they basically refused to do it, you know what I mean? And, oh, you wow. Know, and they were like, you know, we'd have to ask Eric, you know what I mean, because he's in the in the in the mm-hmm. film, and 
whatever. And I was like, just, you know, I'll mix the rest of the record in a week. Get that, get that thing out there. You know, like, like have it be globally out there. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's really, you know, the secret. And, you know, so I look at Dr. John as, you know, he was a shaman. He was a sage. He saw the stuff in advance. Mm -hmm. He wrote a song. We produced a song, you know what I mean? And he, you know, and, and it was right. And a lot of people, you know, that are in touch, <laughs> you know, the, the John Lennons and the Dr. Johns and the, you know, the people that we really admire, they're all on the same cusp yeah. of what's going on, what's happening, you know, culturally and in terms of pushing, you know, pushing society into a particular, you know, in a particular direction, you know, just, you know, the song Imagine, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's it. So, you know, those, those kinds of things which make a difference culturally, spiritually, that affect people on some kind of global, you know, basis or mass basis, let's yeah. say. You know. Or on a personal basis, even the way that Irish talks about you. You, hel you, you helped him, or the way that the, you wrote that letter to that guy, and that was his, uh, interpersonal, like helping people and showing that you care on a small scale is also important, and I don't think enough people do. It's just showing that after something, like if you had never wrote him that letter, he might have known that you were happy, but that probably made the last parts of his life a lot more fulfilling, knowing knowing how much he really helped you. I mean, that that's what I would want. Mm-hmm. I'd want to know that something I did, and we don't know how uh, how we affect other people. We don't, no. you know. There's stuff that we never. We have blinders out. on to our own. Yeah, well, I mean, we're in our own, you know, trough. Yeah, <laughs> you exactly. know, going, yeah. you know, doing our thing or yeah. whatever. But you know that acknowledgement. I mean, sometimes you know, having that, just having that, having that acknowledged, it's it's extremely important. And it, knowing, for me, knowing that I affected. A young mind. I mean, I, I was a, I taught acoustic recording at City College for a few years as an adjunct teacher, and uh, I ran into all kinds of problems, uh, you know, that were you know dealing with the the corporate structure and the and, mm -hmm. and the university and you know their rules and whatever. But there was one message that came in in the middle of this fucking hellstorm that I was going through of learning. And it was a guy, he left me a message. I didn't even talk to him. And he said, Jeff, I just finished setting up for the orchestral recording of Samuel L. Jackson, A Time to Kill. And I have to tell you that every single thing you told me was exactly the way it, you know, it was. And, you know, I knew, you know, what the direct boxes was. I knew what the headphone boxes were. <laughs> I knew how to conduct myself. And I just want to thank you for, you know, what you taught me. That made my entire year. You're talking about it now. Look at how it stuck with you this much later. That is a really important thing to yeah. happen. So, you know, knowing that, and, you know, there's some, you know, some students that I have that, uh, you know, we're still in touch today, you know what I mean? They bring their daughter by or whatever, and it's like, you know, these are, it's, it's important stuff. It is. You know what I mean? It's really important. And that's a really... It's a really uh, beautiful sentiment, and I think a good place to end this. I really, I really appreciate you giving up your time and having this conversation. I feel like I learned a lot, and I feel like people listening have too. And I, uh, I appreciate you giving up your time. Okay. Well, thank you very thank you much for having me. Of it's course, a, it's an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Do you have? 
a like a website you want to plug or oh man i'm so unwebsited right now <laughs> i mean uh you know uh look up winton harvard on uh youtube winton harvard on yes. youtube we'll yeah. we'll plug that and, and uh you know that's that's somebody that's helped me a lot winton marsalis and he speaks about um the history of music, the history of jazz, the, the political history in the United States, and he ties them all in together. Oh, wow. And it's freaking serious shit. He did like six lectures over a two-year period, and I've been working on the second lecture for like a year. Oh, really? Yeah, and that the, that lecture took like a, a couple of years to complete. Wow. So. I will definitely watch. I, I love that. I watched the Ken Burns documentary on the history of jazz when I was younger, and I, that was great. I love just learning about the history and everything, especially being a rap fan. It's you need to know. You need to know the history, and you need to see where it came from. Yeah. So thank you very much for being on. Thank you to everyone who listened. You can like, subscribe, check it out on YouTube, and um, we'll see you next week.